off and the clock has started. Here we go. Welcome to episode 111 of 20 Minutes You'll Never Get Back. Greetings, everybody. This is 20 Minutes You'll Never Get Back. My name is Doug Prezak, as it has been for the past 110 episodes. <laughs> Nothing's changed there. And let's see, uh, I want to say thanks for listening. I mean it. I really, I'm not kidding. I mean it. Every one of you who've been tuning in from anywhere in the world, thank you very much. Uh, catching up. See, last week I uh, sent out a request to you kind listeners to send me an email telling me if you, you know, you like the show or not or anything else you wanted to say. Well, I'm uh, betting the email rolled in. Let's uh, take a look. Graham, go ahead and open up the uh, mailbag and pick one of those emails out and read it for us, okay? Well, let's see. I'm not sure how to say this, but the 20 Minutes Podcast email inbox is empty. It gives me no pleasure to say that, but it does make my job a bit easier. Well, that's a real kick in the soundbite. <laughs> Nothing? <laughs> really? Around the world, nobody? Uh, while we're in the middle of the sad news for Doug department, let's uh, check on Iceland. Let's see. Germany, Greece, Hong Kong, India. Iceland should have been right there, but squeezed in between Hong Kong and India. Crap. <laughs> Why? <laughs> but wait. There is some good news. Uh, this tiny, irrelevant little podcast has crossed over the 11,000 download mark. But if I want to uh, stay real about things, <laughs> by comparison, that uh, Joe Rogan guy, he gets approximately 11 million listeners per episode. <laughs> Ouch. If I may interrupt your pity party here, look at it this way. Joe Rogan has never talked about poltergeists, or the history of donuts, or the Pony Express on his show. See, those 11 million people missed out on all that amazing information. <laughs> See, that's why I keep Graham around. <laughs> hey, this was in the news this week. The event actually happened last June, but for some reason the news just broke uh, the past couple of days. Some of you here in the U.S. may have heard about it, but I'm guessing the news didn't cross the oceans to the rest of the world. The Occupational Safety and Health Administration fined the Mars Wrigley and the M&M Mars Candy Bar Factory more than $14,500 following an accident last year where two workers fell into a vat of chocolate. <laughs> it's not clear how they fell into the tank. I mean, you know, this is <laughs> this is a serious infraction of safety, but come on, I I have to do it. You you won't be disappointed. <laughs> you know, OSHA, those uh, safety people, they said the workers were not authorized to work in the tanks and weren't trained on the proper safety procedures for the equipment. I don't know things like I guess don't fall in the tank or make sure you hang onto the ladder. Officials said two workers were employed by an outside contracting firm and fell waist deep into the partially filled chocolate tank. Emergency workers were able to free the pair by cutting a hole in the bottom of the tank. <laughs> okay, come on, Doug. <laughs> this is serious. Get it together. <clears throat> but then again, in my defense, think about it. The visual imagery is just stunning. Two guys 
waist-high in liquid chocolate dog paddling while firefighters cut a hole in the bottom of the tank that dumps chocolate everywhere while two chocolate-covered guys come flopping out on the floor. (laughs) 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 Serious. Both workers were taken to the hospital, one by helicopter. They're okay now. A Mars representative told reporters last week that the safety of workers and outside contractors is, quote, a top priority for our business. <laughs> the other big uh, exciting news this week was that a little contest they played down in Arizona. You may have heard about it, the uh, Super Bowl. Yeah, I know you heard about it because it was seen around the world and was broadcast in over 180 countries in more than 30 languages. Approximately two-thirds of the United States population watched the game. The NFL and Nielsen said that an estimated 113 million-plus viewers watched Super Bowl 57. And you want some more numbers? And my executive producer just loves it when I put numbers into a podcast. (laughs) Sorry. The lowest daily, and I mean daily, hotel rate for Super Bowl weekend in the Phoenix area was $452.00. The average ticket price to the game was $9,927. That's not for a whole section. That was per seat. So, And if you think you really need to go to the Super Bowl, people were asked what they would give up to go to the game, which I remind you lasts about four hours, but it does include a free Rihanna concert. 21% say would give up all of their vacation days from work. 28% said they would give up their favorite food for a year. And 35% said they would give up drinking for a year. What? nope not me i uh, watched from home and i snacked and speaking of snacks and i'm just talking about american viewers here we ate 88 million pounds of cheese consumed 325 million gallons of beer Uh, we downed 14,000 tons of chips 4 million pounds of pretzels 3 million pounds of popcorn popcorn's kind of light that would be just a lot of popcorn and 2 million pounds of nuts 103 million Americans threw a Super Bowl party. Yeah, thanks a lot for inviting me. Uh, As for the broadcast, 19% of Super Bowl viewers say they prefer the commercials. They're the best part. (laughs) That's some real football fans there. And speaking of commercials, the Fox Network, they charge companies $7 million for a 30-second commercial. Hey, companies, this is Doug. Tell you what, I will charge you two bucks, two dollars, if you <laughs> if you want to broadcast a commercial on my podcast. Okay, that's a deal. <laughs> and finally, all of that brings us to today's topic: TV commercials. Now, no matter what country you're sitting in listening to this podcast, your TV stations have commercials. That's how TV stays on the air. But how did it all start? Well, I'm glad you asked because, in addition to all the numbers I just dumped on you, I also did research on TV commercials because, well, you're probably still uh, busy cleaning up from all those Super Bowl parties that you didn't invite me to. (laughs) Before the advent of television, and yes, kids, there was a time when TV didn't exist. Anyway, before TV, advertising messages were delivered through things like uh, newspapers or on the radio, and in some cases by door-to-door salespeople. Anybody remember the Kirby salesman or the Fuller Brush Man? Would that even fly today? Jeez. The world's first television commercial aired July 1st, 1941, during a baseball game between the Brooklyn Dodgers and the Philadelphia Phillies. The ad was for Bulova Watches, which is actually still in operation today. The commercial only lasted for uh, 10 seconds, and it aired on a local channel in New York called WNBT. 
Now, the commercial costs somewhere between $4 and $9 to create. Yeah, that's what I said, $4 and $9 to create. And with only 1% of the U.S. homes having a TV set at the time, it didn't necessarily mean anything big for sales. Still, close to 4,000 people watched the commercial when it first aired, and it pretty much revolutionized the future of advertising. After an overwhelmingly amount of positive feedback, other companies like Gimbel's Department Store and Firestone Tire, they decided it was time to get in on this new uh, advertising thing. During World War II, this type of advertising and television broadcasts in general were discontinued in the United States so that the country could focus its resources and efforts towards the war. But when the war ended, it didn't take long for TV ads to hit the screens again, and this time, way bigger. In 1948, still less than 1% of Americans owned a television set, but if we time travel ahead six years, that number jumped to almost one-third of American homes had a television. Of course, they were as big as washing machines, but we had one. This boom in television advertising eventually led to the regulation of advertising by the American Association of Advertising Agencies. How many more times can I say advertising? One of the first major changes to TV advertising was the idea of sponsored programs. Businesses started sponsoring an entire television program that either directly or indirectly featured their products. Companies like Kraft and Colgate and GE were just some of the big-name companies taking advantage of this movement, and they sponsored the programming. The content of the show was controlled by the sponsor, with some exercising their control even more than others. As the 1960s came along, sponsor programs started losing steam and businesses no longer wanted to spend the money on sponsoring an entire show. TV executives therefore needed a solution to prevent the cancellation of their shows. Well, enter Sylvester Weaver. He was an NBC executive who came up with a new approach to attract companies to pay for advertising on TV. Instead of one business covering the cost for an entire show, Weaver pitched the idea to sell spots to businesses to advertise during program breaks. These breaks typically lasted between 30 and 60 seconds. This allowed a single program to have up to 18 different sponsors. Well, TV commercials reigned supreme for many years to come until the launch of the Internet. In 2016, digital advertising took its place as the top advertising medium well above television for the first time, unless it's the Super Bowl. It's predicted by the uh, year 2024, that's just like next year, right? Spending on TV advertising will make up less than one-third of client budgets. Teens and young adults and even some Gen Xers say they primarily are using streaming service to view programs, but now Netflix is putting commercials in their shows. And if you're a baby boomer like me, don't worry about it. All we do is we record the TV shows and then we fast forward through the commercials. <laughs> it's time for a break. You know, one of those commercial things. And when we come back, it's time for another famous 20 minutes you'll never get back list. This time, TV ads that made history. Don't go away. And now a message from our sponsor. Ladies, tired of drying your hair with the same old vacuum cleaner? Try Avon Shave brand new Beauty Locks portable hair dryer. It's smaller, it's faster, it's guaranteed to give you the hair you've always wanted in half the time. Beauty Locks is delicate and dainty just like you. The dryer weighs only a pound and easily fits in your hands. Now that's beauty and convenience. 
With a speedy motor that will dry your hair in as little as 25 minutes, you can get gorgeous hair without falling behind schedule. Don't worry about the little ones or that pie in the oven. Thanks to an extra-long extension cord, you can move around well, primping your locks. Alvanche gives you an easy and speedy hairdo that will blow your man away. Get it now at your nearest Macy's. There is so much to unpack in that commercial. <laughs> I don't know what to say, except apparently if you buy the Avanchet hair dryer, you will blow your man away. <laughs> hey, he said it, not me. You know, advertising has evolved over the years, and notably with respect to the representation of women. In the early days of television, you know, perky housewives, they, they peddled convenience foods like TV dinners and detergents, and who can forget Madge and her palm oil fingernail solution. <laughs> With the advent of feminism in the 1960s and 70s, advertisers kind of targeted a new demographic. That was women with children to raise and careers to advance. Fortunately, and more recently, race and modern families and gender stereotypes have all led to changes in the advertising we see. Here are some of the ads that made television history. Now, see if you can remember any of these, depending on how old you are. Well, of course you can. And I think since this is a uh, 20 minutes, you'll never get back list. We need some music. Does anybody out there know which toy was the first to be advertised? Well, in 1952, Mr. Potato Head became the first toy ever to be promoted on a TV commercial. Now, if you're old enough to remember that original Mr. Potato Head, well, you supplied the potato. They supplied the little plastic nose and eyes. <laughs> then you stabbed it in your potato until your potato fell apart. Or if you left it overnight, start rotting in your bedroom. <laughs> Nearly 2 million Mr. Potato Heads were sold in the first year because of that commercial. Smoking was a commonplace in the 1960s, and even Fred Flintstone and Barney Rubble indulged in that uh, activity now and then. The popular cartoon characters were featured in a number of commercials for products over the years, including Kentucky Fried Chicken, Dove Soap, and Winston Cigarettes. Yes, kids watching their favorite prehistoric stars lighting up their Winstons. <laughs> that all went up in smoke when tobacco advertising was banned on television in 1970. And speaking of smoking, the Marlboro Man commercials were a big hit in the 60s. Winston was originally a filtered cigarette aimed at women, but Winston's ad agency created the rugged Marlboro Man to target a more masculine demographic and combat lackluster sales. The Marlboro Man catapulted Philip Morris to the top of the tobacco industry. Just as a side note here, four of the actors who portrayed the mysterious cowboy, they died of tobacco-related illness. Here's one you probably remember. A sea of people of all ages and ethnicities joined in song on an Italian hilltop bound by their love of Coca-Cola and one another. The classic Coke commercial is considered to be one of the most brilliant commercials in advertising history due to the fact that its ad's message of peace and harmony hit home with Americans growing increasingly weary of the Vietnam War. In 1971, America's most famous Native American stared straight into the camera and shed a single tear, distraught over the endless litter covering his native land. The ad was launched on Earth Day and contributed to the reduction of litter in the United States by a reported 88%. However, in 1996, it was revealed that the spot star, actor Iron Eyes Cody, was not actually a Native American, but the offspring of Italian immigrants. 
Despite the ensuing scandal, Ad Age magazine hailed the commercial as one of the most successful advertising campaigns of the 20th century. You know, jingles can make or break a commercial. Do you remember the, you deserve a break today? Yeah, that was written by Barry Manilow, by the way. And now it's going to be stuck in your head all day. Sorry. But one of the more memorable jingles in advertising history wasn't part of a high concept ad campaign and didn't advertise an innovative product. Instead, it was the Look for the Union Label song. I'm not going to sing it for you. Sorry. And it was written for the 1976 International Ladies Garment Union. The spot sold America on progressive vision of worker solidarity. I told you these were ads that made history. Pittsburgh Steeler Mean Joe Green. He marketed himself as well as Coke in the classic 1979 ad which showcased the football star's softer side. Mean Joe Green was one of the first black men to appear in a commercial for a national brand. With his mean old face, he accepts a post-game Coke from a young fan and takes a swig. And then he flashes a smile and tosses the boy his game jersey. Thanks, Mean Joe. <laughs> A 15-year-old, 15-year-old Brooke Shields, dressed in a pair of jeans and a half-button blouse, informed viewers that nothing came between her and her Calvins in the infamous 1981 jeans commercial. The overly sexual ad was banned by both ABC and CBS. Designer Calvin Klein, however, was unfazed, stating, quote, jeans are like sex. The tighter they are, the better they sell. <laughs> nice guy, Calvin. The infamous 1984 Apple commercial has been hailed by some as the greatest ad of all time. Now, you know the commercial. Everything gray in an Orwellian dystopia society with the leader speaking on a big giant screen. When a female athlete uh, wearing a white t-shirt, wielding a big mallet, tosses it in the air and smashes the screen. Teenage boys rejoiced. <laughs> It first aired during the 1984 Super Bowl and sparked 155 million in sales within the first three months of its airing. And just as a side note here, the commercial bombed in its initial market testing. It was almost scrapped. <laughs> also in 1984, Pepsi launched the first of three ads featuring Michael Jackson. Although the singer himself graced the spot for just a few fleeting seconds, Jackson did suffer serious burns while filming when pyrotechnics lit his hair on fire. It's believed that the accident may have sparked his fatal painkiller addiction. Seagram became the first liquor brand to advertise on TV when they released a commercial for Crown Royal in 1996. Before then, alcoholic drinks were banned from being promoted on television or radio. Another commercial that I'm sure you're aware of Time Magazine named the 1987 Partnership for a Drug-Free America ad as one of the most influential commercials of all time. Do you remember the commercial? An egg, a sizzling hot frying pan, crack the egg into the frying pan, and at your brain. The disturbing metaphor was so successful, it was brought back for a 1997 spot with actress Rachel Lee Cook targeting heroin. Another groundbreaking commercial was 1994 from Ikea, it introduced the first openly gay couple in a television commercial. Limited to uh, major East Coast markets, the uh, ad took a homespun documentary approach to the featured partner's search for the perfect sofa. Casually highlighting their backstory and loving, committed relationship, IKEA was inundated with letters of support as well as angry protests and even a bomb threat. And lastly, 
In General Mills 2013 ad, a little girl adorably asks her mother about the nutritional value of their breakfast cereal. When the mom responds that it's good for your heart, the concerned little girl promptly places a handful of Cheerios on her sleeping dad's chest. What distinguished the heartwarming sort of family-friendly commercial was its use of a mixed-race family. The ad's official YouTube video was hijacked by bigots, which forced General Mills to disable the comment section, although the company refused to pull the ad. So there you go, some of the ads that made TV commercial history. And yeah, I know there's a ton of other commercials out there I could have talked about, but I only have 20 minutes. You know, it's in the title of the podcast. <laughs> but after these 20 minutes, did we uh, learn anything? Well, I'll take a stab at it. We learned that a wristwatch commercial in a New York baseball game started it all. We learned that thankfully, the federal government stepped in and made Fred Flintstone and Barney Rubble stop smoking. And we learned that if you're going to do some maintenance work on a tank of chocolate, for heaven's sakes, read the, read the safety instructions. <laughs> That's it for this episode, uh, number 111. Thank you very much for tuning in, and I will talk to you next time. On 20 Minutes, you will never get back. Bye-bye. And scene. Hi, it's me again, Doug. I want to take up a couple more seconds of your time just to remind you, if you want to stay informed of when uh, the next podcast is posted, all you need to do is sign up at uh, on that Instagram machine. It's at uh, 20MYNGB, 20MYNGB, and that means 20 minutes you'll never get back. Uh, if you sign up there, you'll uh, always see when the next podcast is uploaded. And if you want to leave some comments, by all means, please do go to the website at 20minutespodcast.com. So it's 20minutespodcast.com. And uh, you can uh, leave your comments there. It also tells you how you can be an announcer for the show. So take, take a look at those two things if you'd like and stay informed. And I'll, as always, thank you very much for listening to uh, 20 Minutes. You'll never get back. Bye-bye.